The Energy Gang is supported by GE. GE is getting serious about storage. The Energy Giant has a new storage system called Reservoir. It's modular, it's flexible. You can use Reservoir for any kind of grid need. Later in the show, we'll hear a little bit more about the innovations behind Reservoir and the engineer behind those innovations. If you want to see them for yourself, go to ge.com slash energy storage. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. This week, the White House abandons a plan to save coal plants. Did Trump read the IPCC's latest report and have a change of heart? Nah. Turns out the legally flimsy effort caved under its own weight. We'll explain. Then, failing Brexit talks weigh heavily on energy companies in the UK. If a deal can't be struck with the EU, what will happen to energy markets? Finally, Illinois came out of nowhere with an ambitious solar program, but it's gone nowhere so far. What happened? What does it tell us about how to properly craft state policy? Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw join me from Washington, D.C. as always. Catherine, how are you? Great. It's finally getting a little cool here. Yeah. You're about to hop on a plane. We're recording quickly this morning. Where are you going? I'm going to Vermont, where it will be cooler. (laughs) That's right. And cooler because you'll be there speaking at a conference. (laughs) Uh, Catherine Hamilton is, of course, the co-founder and chair of 38 North Solutions there in D.C. Jigger Shah is the president of Generate Capital. Jigger, how are you this morning? Good. I'm feeling good. It's early yet, Stephen. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now that we're all feeling good, let's turn to some political news in Washington, D.C. to sour the mood a little bit. Um, This is some stuff happening in your own swampy backyard. Politico reported this week that the White House is putting an end to its legal hijinks around saving coal plants, or at least part of it. For months, the administration has been floating this legal argument that it could use federal authority to keep aging coal plants open for national security reasons. They're kind of bundling a lot of different laws together and assuming that they have this overarching legal authority, which a lot of lawyers have questioned. Um, It was almost universally accepted as a bad idea. And according to reporting from Politico this week, internal pressures from the National Security Council and Economic Councils caused the White House to drop the plan, at least for now. But they're continuing to try to support coal in other ways, which we will discuss. Catherine, first, just please remind us how all this got started. Yeah, so I think the real beginning was when Robert Murray, who is the big coal mine operator, handed a note to Secretary Perry and said, I want you to save the coal industry and this is how you're going to do it. And then Perry started developing a bunch of reports that actually didn't bear out under the premise that they originally started. So they wanted to do a report on resilience. They did a report on national security. None of it held up that coal was going to be the solution. And yet they've kept trying to use any authority they have to try to prop up that industry. Wait, did he literally like slip him a note? Yes, he did. There's a photograph of it. Oh, yeah. I remember that now. Okay, so the note got Rick Perry excited. Uh, the, the DOE and the White House, they were they were attempting to claim they had this national security authority to keep these plants open. What was actually swirling out there, Catherine? 
So you may recall that this was uh, all done under this wartime act, uh, the under the Federal Power Act, and DOE then sent uh, a notice of proposed rulemaking to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, and said, you need to do something about this, and you need to issue an order on resilience. And so FERC did that. They said, well, actually, there isn't a problem, but let's actually check and see if there is. So they issued a rulemaking um, asking every single independent system operator that is in their jurisdiction to put together a report on resilience. And there were, it was a mixed bag, but most of them said, we do not have a problem. And so every time DOE has tried to figure out how do we keep these uneconomic plants open and running, uh, reality has pushed back on that. And reality finally seems to have set in, uh, at least for now. Well, I think we still need to watch out for Bernard McNamee, the nominee for the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, who is coming out of DOE and is a big proponent of this saving the coal and nuclear industries, especially coal. And, you know, if he gets through, and I think the Senate is fully expecting to push him through pretty quickly, that's going to change the dynamics. Remember, the um, there was a unanimous decision not to go with the DOE NOPER on resilience. Um, and four of those commissioners were Trump appointed commissioners. But one of them who was one of the strongest voices was Commissioner Powelson, who has left. And Powelson was from a state, Pennsylvania, that had understood competition, understood the jurisdiction of state versus federal and the importance of competitive markets. And he was adamantly opposed. Now we have nobody who's been on a state commission. Um, and more of the commissioners come from a political background than from a market-based background. I can anticipate Jigger's reaction to this. Can we please... Finally, stop talking about this now, Jigger. Well, I, what what was interesting to me was how um, incompetent, I would say, the effort has been to push through the strategy. You can imagine that if McNamee or somebody else was in charge of this effort a long time ago, then it may have actually borne more fruit. And so it, it is entirely likely that, you know, that, Rick Perry didn't actually know whether they had this power or not. He was just like, well, like someone fed me a line that on a piece of paper that sounded like I should look into it. And then he sort of looked into it. And then, you know, he couldn't get any of the powers that be within the government to line up behind a case to get it done. And, you know, it's it's always surprising to me how the Trump administration doesn't get the most crafty, the most innovative, the most like sort of diabolical person and just put them in charge of getting this done. They sort of leave it to amateurs. Except for Scott Pruitt. Right. But that's the, but that's why it was he was so much more effective. And even there at EPA, I mean, most of his stuff will be unwound, right? Because it takes sort of four to six years to unwind um, regulations. And he didn't have that much time there. I also think there's a lot of political pushback. So the opposition to this entire initiative to save coal comes from oil and gas, consumer groups, environmental groups, even conservative small government groups, groups that don't want the government to put its thumb on the scale of competition and free market. So there is so much opposition. And the coal industry is tiny. It's the solar industry is five times bigger than the coal industry. So, you know, other than Murray, the political push just isn't there. And I know that the president made a campaign promise. And that's where I am still 
fearful that something will happen. But I, I just think that politically, no one else is there. So what will happen? Obviously, the EPA uh, under Andrew Wheeler will continue to review and potentially dismantle regulations on the coal industry and the electric sector. So that's one route. The other is just continuing this like flimsy throw things against the wall and see what sticks approach uh, to saving coal. Uh, Ryan Zinke this week, the interior secretary suggested that the Trump administration would use military bases for coal exports because a lot of states are now blocking coal export terminals. So they said, well, we'll just potentially use military bases. And, you know, of course, Democrats are up in arms. National security officials are considering this and saying, like, well, what does that do to resources at military bases? So yet again, we have but this is... another idea that's thrown out that's floated out there but this is what i'm saying is that that ryan zinke is not capable of thinking this through properly right he's basically you know sort of a d-team type person and so if you had somebody who was actually an a-team like person who they do exist within the republican establishment then they wouldn't have thrown out this idea they would have come up with something far you know, better and like actually more likely to succeed. I mean, this is why I don't take this administration seriously is because everyone seems incapable of putting together a coherent set of logical thoughts to accomplish with their goals. Well, ironically, Department of Energy just announced $46 million going to improve resilience of solar. So they're uh, they're putting money towards situational awareness, cybersecurity, physical threats, et cetera, because I guess as it turns out, solar is actually more resilient. So the final piece of this relates to suppression of a report written by Michael Weber and his team at the University of Texas, uh, Weber Energy Group. M Michael Weber is a well-known energy expert and author, and he actually just moved over to uh, ONG. They wrote a report. The Department of Energy contacted the Weber Energy Group and asked them to look at the whether keeping these plants open would help national security and grid resiliency, and they found no, that they don't, that there are a lot of factors that go into keeping the grid uh, more resilient and safer. The report has reportedly been suppressed for the last six months. And so the White House demanded the report very quickly, and then when it got the results back, it sat on the report. Um, so there are, there's now speculation about you know, whether the White House doesn't want this to come out at all, because it yet again contradicts their argument for keeping these plants open. Just like the first internal DOE report requested by Secretary Perry. So I, I think that this is pretty common, right? So at this part, I don't want to necessarily blame on the Trump administration. I mean, the Bush administration was was known for sitting on reports forever that were dealing with climate change until they could find a moment to release it when no one would cover it or, you know, change some words in the executive summary that, you know, that changed the entire meaning of the report. So I think this this particular action is par for the course. The part that I think is more interesting on in the coal conversation is really just more of the insidious stuff that's being done, you know, at the local level by local utilities, etc. So I mean, I, I think we should focus more on where you know, some efforts are actually succeeding to support coal plants. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, Joseph Daniel from Union of Concerned Scientists posted a blog and did a pretty detailed analysis on the fact that uh, monopoly utilities in Southwest Power Pool, but also some other ISOs, have been running more expensive plants out of market rather than the cheaper, cleaner options, which you're supposed to do in a, in a competitive market, uh, because they want those dirty coal plants to become more economically viable. And it all of that is on the back of the consumers. So he estimates that you know, coal plants are losing about one and a half billion dollars a year. They've lost almost five billion over the last three years. So most of them are closing down. But if they can then run them and have consumers pay, which they're able to, to recoup their costs, that's a billion dollars a burden every single year that consumers would pay. And so there is this going on. It's not sustainable. They will eventually have to shut them down, but it really does complicate the markets when they do that. So interestingly enough, I had uh, drinks with uh, TJ Diora the other day at uh, SEPA, and, uh, and, and they've been running this 51st state effort Part of the reason why the 51st state effort was even launched was when when Business Week covered the um, death spiral of the utility that we've been talking about for years. Um, the utilities needed a response. And, you know, he basically has come out with this culmination report, which I've seen an early draft of. And part of what he was saying was he said, like, you know, we're trying really hard to get the utilities to understand that things are changing all around them. But they keep doing this kind of stuff, right? Like running coal plants that are uneconomic, costing their ratepayers a billion dollars they don't need to spend, or you know, putting in smart meters but never turning on the advanced features, or whatever it is, and it just undermines their credibility such that like we can't protect them. Like you can't protect utility companies who won't do the most basic things to protect their ratepayers' interests. And they won't be able to get their consumers on board when they need them. <laughs> Okay, so speaking of utilities making this transition, let's hear a quick story about how battery storage is transforming utility operations. This podcast is brought to you by GE. GE has a new energy storage system called Reservoir. It's a modular lithium-ion system that slashes construction time by up to 50%. The product itself is new, but it's the result of decades of innovation in software, power electronics, and systems design. You know, learning through fielding many projects. You remember Bob, right? He's the engineer leading the Reservoir team. He's been building power plants for 25 years. We talked to him last week while on the road helping customers with their battery systems. I'm in London. Bob travels from London to New York to California, building energy storage solutions that perfectly fit local needs whether for frequency regulation, dispatching renewables, or backing up a microgrid. The reservoir system uses a Lego approach, stacking pre-assembled modules together to slash costs and simplify installation. And so, you know, we've developed the reservoir to uh, come up with the best, most optimal way of uh, addressing the, all the, the large variety of different use cases that are out there for batteries. Do you have fun designing a product like that? It, it is. It is um, fun to take and improve on a design where you felt the pain. So being the field engineer as a startup company, being the application engineer, talking to customers and trying to fit the product into a customer spec. So, you know, you know where all those challenges are and, and, and to come up with designs. It's fun to solve problems. Let Bob and his team at GE solve your problems. 
The reservoir system brings decades of field experience and tech innovation into a simple modular battery solution. Find out more about GE's reservoir battery storage system at ge.com slash energy storage. Let's catch up with our friends across the Atlantic now. The UK is just months away from a deadline to reach a deal for exiting the European Union. Recent talks did not result in agreement. And the government is now planning more seriously about what happens if no deal is reached. What happens to trade agreements, cross-border markets, customs, immigration, everything? Uh, You know, it touches everything that the government does. Electricity suppliers are asking the same question. Will the EU recognize sales of UK renewable electricity credits? Will the EU recognize certification of installers of solar, geothermal, and biomass systems? According to a government document, no, they will not. If a deal is not reached, then the EU will not recognize those things. So let's talk about the consequences. Um, Jigger, if you owned a renewable energy project or, or projects that sold electrons or carbon credits into the EU, how worried would you be? Um, I don't know that I'd be that worried. I, you know, I think that the, the, the premise here is, is you have to start from first principles, right? Which is that the UK is by far the most dynamic utility market in the world, right? So I think let's start there, the regulatory framework, etc. And as of this week, the Telegraph just uh, published an article showing that the UK government released a report uh, saying that Britain's carbon footprint is the smallest it's been in, since 1859, right? And so, like, when it comes to world powers, OECD countries, the UK is leagues ahead of Germany, California, everyone else in terms of actually reducing their carbon footprint um, to a point that's, that's um, you know, really admirable. And so now the question really becomes, you know, what will happen when, you know, there's a no deal on Brexit? And will the rest of the electricity markets just say for these, because of these complicated sort of renewable energy certificate arguments, we're not going to allow UK excess renewable energy power to be exported through four cables that they have existing now and eight more that are under construction um, to interact with the rest of the market. And I just don't see that happening. I mean, I, I think that the EU really wants London to continue to work on energy trading. And I think you're going to see that, you know, not unlike the California story that we talk about, having a, lo- a larger balancing area and having more electricity markets participating in the, in the larger market makes the markets more efficient. Yeah, I totally agree, Jigger. I talked to an investor over there, and he said that the the energy market is too important to mess around with, that the um, capacity market is really active. There are new business models. There should probably be no change in policy. And he thinks it will be even more aggressive on decarbonization. He said the interconnections are strong, including the gas pipeline connections. And he said the bigger risk is on currency, not on the energy markets. Right. I don't know. I, I I think that a lot of electricity suppliers, natural gas suppliers are pretty worried about this. So when it comes to cross-border electricity deals, most of those deals are predicated on bilateral agreements between countries. So they shouldn't necessarily be impacted. But what is worrisome is the sales of renewable energy certificates or carbon credits. Um, It's unclear if the UK stays in 
the European Emissions Trading Scheme. And if you start to have credits that are worthless, what happens to the economics of uh, clean energy projects? That's pretty worrisome. There's this other bigger question about what happens to Ireland's electricity market. Um, Ireland is staying in the EU. Northern Ireland will exit with the UK. And there are a whole host of questions about what happens to their harmonized electricity market. And that's where a lot of concerns are directed now. The one thing I would say, though, is that the the local renewable energy industry has never been stronger, right? I mean, and so now with the cost reductions of solar, etc., there's a lot of solar projects going back into the UK after three or four years of a hiatus. My sense is the folks who are most concerned about this are going to be large offshore wind farms and some of those guys. And frankly, most of those guys are big boys, right? I mean, folks like um the you know the danish and others who are investing in these projects they have every incentive to pressure their governments to make sure that the eu cuts a fair deal to make sure that their investments continue to have um you know economic sort of rights and so i i i just don't see how this falls apart my sense is is that it's not some little guy you're crushing it's like the danish pension fund but uh, i'm watching the politics from afar and, you know, I listen to like the BBC's uh, Brexit podcast and I, you know, just try to keep up on what's happening. And it feels like there's not that much urgency from Brussels and a ton of urgency in the UK. So when the deal, potential deal failed over the weekend, uh, you know, Westminster is going crazy and the folks in Brussels are like, well, yeah, this is this is what you get. So I don't know that like <laughs> there's a guarantee that we're going to get some kind of deal and that everything's going to be fine. Well, of course, there's a potential for chaos. But have you lived in like Nevada when, you know, like they sort of banned residential solar and then brought it back? I mean, we live with chaos in our markets. My point is simply that the notion that we're going to have a Spain like situation where, you know, billions of dollars of investments will suddenly get written down. Um, I think is pretty low, right? And so, so it could happen. Lots of things could happen, but I, I don't. I am not worried about the Brexit um, issues right now in the UK. Frankly, I'm. I'm still like. I still think there's a very small chance that the UK reverses Brexit. That Theresa May basically throws no up her way. hands and well, they've thrown her under the bus, right? So they've said you're you're a dead woman walking, and once this deal comes together and finishes, then. Um, you're no longer going to be the prime minister. So that's been interesting to watch. And, you know, this has been very difficult to put together. She may just throw up her hands and leave. The next person, I don't think, wants to actually finish the negotiations. So it, it, you could end up seeing like someone else come in and say, ah, you know, this was a bad idea. We're just actually going to reverse the clock and go back. What you're talking about here, Jigger, is a time machine. <laughs> a, a hot tub time machine. All right. I know that there are a lot of very intelligent researchers there in the UK, but I'm not sure any of them have invented a time machine. I, I think uh, we're I think we're stuck with the situation that we have. I want one that goes forward. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To 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 a date that to doesn't involve Donald Trump being president. Um, yeah, that that'd be useful. Mr. Brexit. That's what he calls himself. 
Okay, well, let's um, let's turn back to our home country here and go to your home state, Jigger of Illinois, where the state passed a landmark deal at the end of 2016 to save nuclear plants and promote renewables. A plan to promote solar was formed out of that deal, and it was supposed to be in place by now. But according to reporting from our journalist Emma Faringer Merchant, the program has faced chaos and a waterfall of problems, say, solar companies in the state. So, Jigger, start first with the context. How did Illinois become a theoretically hot state for solar? Wow. Well, you know, uh, it all started way, way back. When Jigger yeah, Shaw was it, born. It, in a <laughs> couple of years ago, exactly. Um, and so, you know, Exelon really needed subsidies to keep their nuclear plants open. And they successfully got them for a few years without giving anything to the renewable energy industry. They were able to cobble enough votes in the state legislature to compensate themselves for the lost revenue from losing in the capacity markets in the PJM. Um, so the latest time when that occurred, the um, the legislature just said, no, no more. We're not going to keep providing these subsidies and raising electricity rates. And so Exelon was flailing around, around trying to find votes and they partnered with Dynergy and said, hey, what if we save your coal plants? And you know, and then they parted with others. And w after losing, 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 like with 38 minutes left in the session, they finally said, fine, we'll partner with Renewable Energy, even though we hate you. And um, and we got a deal. And, you know, there was $7 billion of additional uh, capital provided to energy efficiency and renewable energy. And so since that time, there has been um, a lot of work to, uh, to be done around how the program should be set up. And I want to make sure that people understand that the controversy that we're talking about here is really about the community solar program. So they have other designations, they have residential, rooftop commercial, they have um, utility scale, they have brownfield designations. All of those programs are doing fine. They've had auctions, they've like, you know, had rebate programs, and people are doing what they need to do. And they, people might complain about what level of subsidy they're getting, et cetera, but the programs are, themselves are functional. The program that we're talking about here, which is probably less than one quarter or one fifth of all of the megawatts, are in the community solar bucket. And in that program, um, there's just a lot of complexity to the market. And I, I would say to you that I don't agree with your characterization around other markets and learning from those markets. I, like, I think New York's program has been a shit show, obviously, um, with Veter and that kind of stuff. You've got five years later, only like 40 megawatts of solar that's been installed so far under the community solar statute. Um, Maryland, I think, has been no picnic with Anne Arundel County actually banning solar um, in the county for farmland. And so there's a lot of hiccups in these community solar markets across the country. Frankly, the only one that I think has been reasonably smooth has been sort of Minnesota, probably. And that's just because XL Energy faced it in Colorado first, and I think learn from their mistakes. So, so like, so I would say that that that's the backdrop, and then there's a lot of specifics, obviously, to, to the dysfunction that I can get into. Yeah, what are the specifics? Like, I I think it's so complicated that it can be hard to understand why exactly they're facing all these issues. So, just walk us through a couple of the main reasons why the market has been so complicated and installed. So what Illinois did, not unlike New York for the first two uh, buckets of money, um, is said, you know, here's the economics of the deal. Go out and 
find projects, get through the interconnection queue and, you know, get an interconnection study from Comet or Amarin, and then you're allowed to bid into this auction, right? The, they expected the first auction to happen in, um, in June of 2018. And if that had happened, we probably wouldn't be in this mess because the number of people that would have gotten through all of those steps were so small that the auction probably would have only been oversubscribed by 2x. Um, what's happened since then is because the market has been so delayed, and now it looks like the auction will be in January of next year, um, that number is probably going to be three times higher. So it'll probably be six times oversubscribed. And when that happens, a couple things become complicated. One is that there's this sense of lottery tickets. So it's not unlike the NBA draft, right? If you're a terrible team, you get like 35 lottery tickets. And if you're the best team, you get one lottery ticket. And so in this case, if you have commercial industrial off takers, which is what most people in Minnesota are used to doing, um, you know, you only get one lottery ticket. So if you do 50% residential, you get another lottery ticket. If you do more residential, you get a third lottery ticket. And so now pretty much everyone is forced to do residential offtake. And many of them don't really know how to do it. I personally think it's fantastic just because I think community solar should be frankly for residential and maybe small hair salons, but not for Target, Walmart, and you know, other big guys. Um, so that part's one complication. The other complication is that if, if you're, if you're a, solar system that's connecting to an interconnection point and you were the first one to uh to register you you know get a, a low number let's call it two hundred thousand bucks to to interconnect if you're the third one in line comed says your cost to interconnect is 1.2 million but the person that's first in line is higher up in the interconnection queue so if the person that's third in line gets the lottery ticket and their lottery ticket is chosen the person that's first in line can just sit there on the lot on the queue position Right. And so and run out the clock and make sure the person that's third in line never gets to build their project. Right. So you're sitting there with like the right to get the money from the state of Illinois. But the people ahead of you in line in the interconnection process won't let you build your project first. And so you could see that there is sort of a standoff there. Um which, you know, makes makes people a little bit nervous. Yeah, so I talked to, and I think, Jigger, you did too, talked to John Bushinsky of Trajectory Energy Partners, who has a lot of development in Illinois, and they've been in that market for a while now. And, you know, he's sort of highlighted two things. One was the fact that it's a lottery. So, you know, if you have a lottery system, you're going to throw more business cards in the pot in hoping that yours are going to be picked. And the second piece of that is, and so you may throw in a bunch of stuff that's not real. And I think uh, Emma called these zombie projects in her article. So just a bunch of any projects you can just so that something will be picked because they have another provision called the golden ticket, which is if a bad project that isn't good is chosen for, from the lottery, you can switch out for a real project. And so that creates a moral hazard to just put more bad projects in there. And John thinks that this is very fixable, that the um, Illinois Power Agency can fix this by having to have pre-bid collateral in place, by not allowing any more lottery entries since that since that golden ticket option occurred so that all the projects have to be real. 
and making sure that, as you said, Jigger, there are real interconnection studies in place, that there are leases, that they actually have real projects in hand. And that would help solve some of this because, as you say, this is driving all the prices up. Whoa, whoa, this doesn't actually sound that bad. Jigger's talking about the NBA draft. You're talking about golden tickets. All we need now is some flying glass elevator for the top developers, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, you know, that what to, to add insult to injury, um, what really set John off, and I've, I've talked to Environmental Law Protection Center, Borrego, and Edison Energy as well, and like what really set everybody off is that ComEd and Ameren in this latest comment period suggested that we drop the interconnection requirement um, and actually just let more zombie projects in, right? So the utility companies are deliberately trying to be unhelpful to screw with the solar industry. And so like, that's what's really set everybody off. And, and that occurred during SPI, Solar Power International. And so, um, and so you know, hopefully the IPA rejects that um, that set of suggestions from ComEd and Ameren. But it really goes to ComEd and Ameren's character that they actually issued such um, vitriolic, you know, blatantly uh, diabolical, um, uh, you know, like comments in the first place. Okay, so um, Catherine needs to get to an airplane here pretty soon. Let's just wrap this up and just tell us like why all this matters in terms of crafting good state policy here in the U.S. Let's bring it out of Illinois and contextualize this. I think the reason this matters so much is because the, when states pass policy, it, it rarely works, right? In the energy markets, when they pass policy for geothermal or biomass or whatever, you know, I mean, in the state of California, there's still like 50 million bucks of solar hot water money that no one seems to want to claim. And so, so it, it matters when states pass policy and the solar PV industry actually jumps to attention and says, we're going to spend $50 million of development capital to crisscross the state and educate all the mayors and figure out exactly how to do all this work and really like actually clean up all the bad practices in the state to get them um, ready for the solar revolution. Um, and then they screw around with all these people. Like at some point, one, a lot of these companies are going to lose money, um, which is not a good thing for the health of our industry. But two, it also creates a bad taste in the mouth of the people that are the stakeholders, right? Imagine if you're a landowner that a solar industry professional like optioned, and you were a good person, you came in early, you did all the things, you followed the rules. And then there are all these last minute snafus where you know, your lottery ticket isn't chosen. And then that landowner doesn't get the rent that they were expecting for, you know, the next 20 years on the solar project, right? I just think it makes that landowner now just hate solar. And so like, and which is, you know, I think part of ComEd and Ameren's secret plan is to be like, hey, the more chaos, the more people are going to hate solar and the less we have to build. Um, and it just, it, and it, it's not good policy, right? I mean, ComEd and Ameren should fight the fight in the legislature. And then once the legislation is passed, they should actually get in line and be good citizens about this. Well, good news that the solar industry has some solutions for them. All right, let's give our free electrons. Catherine, you go first. Yeah, so I'm going to log roll for you, Stephen. Your interview um, on the interchange with the Wonder Capital and Clean Light Power and Energy women, those three women, was so good. And I just wanted to stress the importance of having women on boards and throughout 
company culture. It really does make for a better process and it makes for better outcomes from businesses. And that's been proven in study after study. Um, Governor Brown from California just signed into law, uh, you know, legislation that basically says that any publicly held company um, based in California has to have a woman on their board by 2019 and by 2021 has to have two out of five or three out of over six women on their board. And it may not stand up to legal scrutiny. He was trying to um, copy what a lot of European countries have done, but it puts it out there. And I think it's so important, not just, I mean, women on boards will then force women into the C-suite. And I was talking to a woman this last week about, yeah, we don't have, we only have C-suite people speak at our conferences. And so that's why we have trouble getting women. Well, we need to get women through the pipeline, all the way up through the companies into the C-suite and on the boards. And I I think uh, your interview was great. And uh, this initiative by Brown is good. At least it highlights the importance of it. Thank you. I appreciate that. And um, Katie, Becca, and Karen were just fantastic. And we ended up talking for like well over two hours. And we turned that into like a 15 minute episode on the interchange. I mentioned it at the end of last week's show. And I forgot to mention that it was on the interchange. So thank you for mentioning that. I'm curious, uh, Catherine, did their experience speak to your experience? Yes, definitely. When you walk into a room and and it, you know, woman or any other type of, you know, uh, diversity, you walk into a room and you don't say see anybody who looks anything like you, you don't really feel like you belong. You're not part of it, that you're just an observer. And so that's why it's so important for us to get everybody, women and other diversity candidates all through companies. Jigger, what's your free electron? So I've got two as usual. Um, My first one is that, you know, I don't know how many people followed the reporting of Thad Moore over at the Post and Courier in Charleston, but his investigative journalism work around what exactly happened at Scana, what they knew and when they knew it, and what they revealed and didn't reveal uh, revealed to their regulators and their shareholders was just breathtaking. Um, You're talking about the failed nuclear project. Yeah, I mean, just, oh my God. I mean, like they knew two years earlier, they like they asked their partners who were co-investors in the project for more money to pay for cost of runs without sending them the IE report, which basically showed that the plant was just incapable of sort of meeting all these requirements. And you just, it was just shocking to me how that could even have happened. Um, So, you know, for those folks who haven't read uh, the articles, please like, you know, look up Thad Moore. I mean, his, his work was really just amazing. He should get a Pulitzer Prize for what he just did. Um, so um, I, I know that we have a little bit of a lack of context there for some listeners who may not be following that saga. But if you'll remember back to, I think, December of last year, we had a fantastic interview with uh, a journalist who's been following this story in South Carolina. And if you want to go back to the December episode, we have a very detailed discussion about uh, the failed nuclear plants in the southeast. What's your second one, Jigger? The second one was, um, you know, a little known bill on October 5th passed the House and Senate called the BUILD Act, which is the better utilization of investment leading to development. Uh, It's a bipartisan bill, and it basically pulls out a lot of the private sector 
uh, investment work uh, out of OPIC and USAID and makes our own what you call uh, DFI, a development finance institution. So, you know, the UK, Japan, other places have had these DFIs for a long time. They can put equity, debt, et cetera, directly into projects overseas. Um, so the U.S. now has one. It's called the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. And over the next few years, it'll figure out how to uh, use the U.S. government's largesse to, you know, to create soft power in these markets where we can take a lot of our market-based solutions for clean energy and other, you know, other development um, and, you know, have an agency that can invest directly into helping U.S. entrepreneurs uh, promote their solutions overseas. Well, my story is on a major record, and that is U.S. corporations have procured this year so far over four gigawatts of wind and solar projects. And that was a report put together by the Wind Solar Alliance tracking these deals. Uh, The RMI Business Renewables Center also tracks these deals, and they're showing that this year was a record in terms of actual procurements of uh, electrons from wind and solar projects. So this is uh, shattering previous records. It is extraordinary to see how these large companies are embracing these projects for cost reasons, not just environmental reasons. And now everyone is talking about the next stage of uh, corporate procurement, which is, you know, minute by minute, hour by hour, matching supply of renewable electrons with demand for first critical facilities and data centers and then overall corporate operations. So we are taking bigger steps toward that eventual goal. Well, and it really matters because, you know, it's actually greening the entire company as well. Like these sort of initiatives, like Microsoft just came out for the first time ever and supported the carbon tax that's on the ballot in Washington state. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's bleeding into their regulatory affairs and their sort of corporate persona more broadly. Absolutely. Okay, we'll leave it there. Catherine, we'll let you uh, go up to Vermont. Uh, have a good trip. Thank you. You're going to go do some leaf peeping? The leaves are almost off the trees now. I know. I'm so excited, though, because this Renewable Energy Conference is going to be great. Jigger, enjoy the rest of your week. I will. I'll be thinking of Catherine and and her wonderful exploits. I uh, have attended that conference in the past and uh, and just think the people there are fantastic. Yeah. I was just camping last weekend up in northern New Hampshire, and it was very cold, but the leaves were absolutely beautiful, so I hope that it remains beautiful for you while you're up there, but you're probably going to be just trapped in a conference center talking to people, so I hope you get outdoors. Um, All of you, if you're walking outdoors, if you're taking a walk with a dog, if you're hiking and you're keeping us in your ears, consider turning to your phone for a second, giving us a rating and review. If you want to send us an idea, just hit us up on Twitter. All three of us are there, and you can also hit up the Energy Gang as well, and we'll try to respond to you. We certainly um, take your ideas into consideration as we pass around story ideas each week. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Stephen Lacey with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah. We are the Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. 